Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune, covering breaking news and current events as it pertains to Bible prophecy. In effect, chronicling the coming of Christ the King. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this special edition of the End Time Tribune. It's good to be with you tonight. We're going to be talking about some celestial symbology. I'm going to be reading an excerpt from the Observatory publication. This can be obtained, of course, at Harvard University. It was published in 1977. It is volume 97, pages 26 and 28. The matter of the companion star to Sirius is perhaps the most intriguing. The Dogon reportedly know, number one, that a star they call Pol Totol, which is invisible to the naked eye, exists. Number two, that it moves in an elliptical orbit around Sirius. Number three, that it is small and dense, and number four, that its period is 50 years. All of these points are indeed reported by Marcel Graul and Romain Detrelin, the two ethnographers who have done the most work among the Dogon. This information, however, is by no means unambiguous. It should be noted, first of all, that the Dogon cosmologically system is reported by Graul, twins and twinnesses are very important, as in many other cultures in West Africa. Interestingly enough, it is a rather complex Dogon linguistic system. The star, Pol Totolo, and the seed of the same name are identified not only with each other, but with also a large number of symbolic or physical objects, including the type of womb thought by the Dogon to produce twins. This might, of course, be because the Dogon, knowing Sirius to have a companion star, chose this system for the many important symbolic and cosmological functions reported to be attributed to it on the basis of the ritual importance of the twinness. On the other hand, it seems to us to be more reasonable to suggest that since twins are so important, any ritually important star and the series system is thought to represent the source of creation, would have to be assigned a companion. The problem arising from there being so much star visible could only be solved by its being exceedingly small, and the problem of creation emanating from something exceedingly small, at least alleviated by attributing a great density to that something. Both of these beliefs are reported to be held by the Dogon. They are. In fact, it is to say that the Dogon knew Sirius B to be a white dwarf. It would be rather remarkable where Sirius, the only star assigned by a companion in Dogon mythology, in certain sense, however, it isn't. 
in Le Renard Pael, the most complete work on Dogon cosmology. Raoul and Ditterlin mention that Polaris is considered as a molt, the double of that system, a system of constellations also ceremonially important to the Dogon, which it summarizes. This would seem to support our suggestion that the symbolic importance of twins and twinness in such that any ritually important star or collection of stars must be assigned a double. Now, ladies and gentlemen, like I said, this is straight out of the observatory. Now, with everything that they had to say about twins, I'm sure that most of you have heard all about the Dogon. But I doubt very seriously that you thought to check the astronomy journals to see what they had to say about about that that topic itself. Absolutely off the charts. What does the Bible say about twins? How many other twins are in the heavens? That's what we're going to be talking about tonight here on the End Time Tribune.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this special edition of the End Time Tribune. Uh, this is our second one this week. I hope you all are enjoying. We're trying to get caught up on shows at the behest of Brian. So we're trying to uh, do a whole lot more output. Uh, last week we covered what Brian wanted, so tonight I decided to uh, do some of our stuff. So that means next, the next show we do extra outside of the normally scheduled broadcast will be Brian's choice, and we'll try to knock all this stuff out that uh, people want us to cover. But tonight, we are going to talk about the Dogon and the serious mystery. Uh, with us tonight, uh, joining us, is my son Aaron, as he has done some research on uh, what we're going to be talking about tonight. So, let's get everybody on here and get everybody's uh, take Uh, Brian, I know you have mentioned uh, the Dogon to our listeners before, and I have in times past, I can't remember how long ago it was, uh, I was asked uh, that we do a show on on what you had spoke about the Dogon people and the Sirius star system. So uh, what's your background on this topic, and how did you stumble across it, bud? Good grief. Uh, Years upon years back, as I was working through various... uh, Odds and ends uh, concerning this whole celestial puzzle, I would have to say, and how the ancients understood it. So um, I've done bits and pieces of work on there, but nonetheless, I've come to realize that their information, I would have to say, came all together from somebody else. And I think that's where, um, well, you may even be surprised when I let this cat out of the bag. Well, I hope so. I hope so, Brian. That's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to come together and talk about things that need to be talked about um, in a purely biblical light. Uh, Christians seem to be lacking in, you know, really tackling these hard topics when that should be the basis of Christianity is simple truth. You should be able to take the facts, no matter what those facts are, and you just have to deal with it. If you can't at least do that, you're never going to be able to swallow the Bible, God's holy word. No doubt about it. Well, Aaron, why don't you in here and just give us a rough sketch about how you got involved with this program. Uh, describe what happened earlier today and uh, give everybody an update on what you've been up to here lately. Um because you have been on the broadcast before, of course. I think the last one that we did, Aaron, was the Pope Prophecy and Time Topsy Turvy, I believe. But uh, uh, describe how you got uh, entangled in this mess, bud. Okay. Um, well, in Isaiah 46, verse 1, we see uh, it is written, Bell stoops down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and cattle. And these things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary beasts. Um, uh, my dad uh, made sure to point out in that in the Greek, the name Dagon is translated right next to the name Bel or Baal. Um, and so we kind of got into the concept of Bel and um, and Dagon and 
um, first of all, we know that Dagon is um, the half-man, half-fish god of the Philistines. Um, we know how in Second Samuel, when the Ark of the Covenant was set in front of him, his statue fell and broke his hands and head um, before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so, as strange as it seems, that that same character of um, the, both these characters of Bel and Dagon appear all over the world in mythology, and um, and it begins to make me wonder um, if something actually really happened. And um, as as Dad was looking at at the um, half fish, half man um, gods in the inscriptions and the carvings that were done in the Middle East, like in uh, Babylon and Persia. And I pointed out that I've been reading this, the Eusebius Chronicle. He was a, um, an ancient scribe. I believe he was a bishop as well, Eusebius. And he wrote and he wrote this chronicle of history, and he pointed out a few things which were kind of chilling. And um, as he gives a list of the first kings of um, Babylon, he gives a strange description. He says, after Amalon and then on a Chaldean from Parmibibalon, he became king for 12 stars. In his reign, the monster Anadis, who, whose form was a mixture between a man and a fish, appeared out of the Red Sea. And furthermore, he talked about, it talks about a king named Danis, where in his reign, again, four monsters appeared out of the sea who, like Anadis, were a mixture between man and a fish. And furthermore, another one appears in another king's reign whose name is which appears as a god in uh, Babylonian mythology. And he is also a mixture between a man and a fish. Um, And this is basically what description he gives. He says, In the first year, a horrible beast appeared out of the Red Sea in the region near Babylonia. Its name was Oanese, according to Apollodorus. It It had the complete body of a fish, but underneath its head, there grew another head beneath the fish's head. And in the same way, the feet of a man grew of the tail of the fish. It had the voice of a man, and in its likeness had been preserved even down to the present day. He says that this beast, taking no food, but instructing them about writing and science and all kinds of crafts, it taught them about founding cities and establishing temples, about introducing laws and about geometry. It showed them how to sow seed and gather fruit, and in general, it gave men all the skills they needed to for civilized life. Since that time, nothing additional has been discovered. But when the sun set, this beast, Elanese, went back into the sea and spent the night in the winter because it was amphibious. Afterwards, other beasts appeared, which he says he will mention in the list of kings. But he says that Oanese wrote about creation and about the government states, and he passed on the message to mankind. 
And furthermore, he begins to describe how there were monsters that were born in um, back in the days where there were um, where there was formless and void before God created everything, and um, gives a rather um, bizarre description of them, like um, some had one body and two heads, of a man and a woman, and two sets of genitals, female. Other men had the legs and horns of a goat and the horns of a horse. Thus, that brings back Azazel. And I'd like to point out that um, Azazel, I mean, I know this is, I don't consider this much as like the Bible, but um, the apocryphal book of Enoch tells about how Azazel and his angels came down in the days of Noah, and they basically taught humans everything, like geometry and decorations, basically sciences of all kinds, just like these monsters of the sea that were just described. Um, And furthermore, in Eusebius' Chronicle, as it describes these hideous monsters, it says that these were set up in the temple of Belus, or Bel, that brings us back to um, Isaiah chapter 46, verse, verse 1. And um, he begins to describe that um, how, how Belus was Zeus, and it's in half. It's basically giving the description of creation. And we know Belus um, must have been some sort of angelic entity, as I have seen seem to come across because his name, Bell, is all over the world. Even in Russian mythology, his name is Belize. And he seemed a sort of a demonic entity, a, a dragon um, of black magic and things. And Bellus, also we know his name is Baal or Baal um, in, the, in the Middle East who the, we know the Israelites kept going after instead of God. And his name basically means Lord. And he, he's all over the place, all over the world. That name fell in random combinations. And um, one of the most prominent of them, which I found in the Bible, is in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 15, is, Does Christ have to do with Belial? And what part does he who believes with the infidel? And here, the liar is some sort of entity having to do with lawlessness and darkness. And um, he's, equa- he's, he's some sort of polar entity from the light of Christ, some um, source, some power of evil. And we, um, in an all, all in all different Pseudodepigrapha and Apocrypha, as I've um, interested myself in before, I know this name Belier is all over the place, and um, he's kind of used interchangeable with Satan. Um, Whoever this Bell character is, um, who I equate with Belier, um, is that um, he's one of the accusers or one of Satan's um, direct. Uh, associates and um, and as uh, Jeremiah let me get this um, I'm going to pick pick up a verse 
Um, as we know, Jeremiah talks about um, this, uh, how Bell will regurgitate everything that he's swollen, that he's swallowed. And um, this refers to how he, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's, well, I missed it. Um, I'll read it now. It's Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 44. I'm sorry. Um, and I will punish Bel in Babylon, and I will bring forth out of his mouth that which had been swallowed up, and the nations shall not follow together any more unto him. Yea, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Bel is some sort of entity that is closely related to Babylon. Um, he is basically the sign of Babylon. Um, he was their chief god. And um, through my studies, I believe that he may be the angelic entity over Babylon. And as I'd like to point out, Babylon isn't, wasn't just one kingdom. It was a lot of different kingdoms, like six different. And um, Babylon, was, as we know, was built by the ancient Sumerians when they tried to reach up into heaven with their Tower of Babel. And ever since they've been a sign of arrogance and God continually attacked Babel and let it be taken over by somebody else. But still that prominent name of Babylon remains to this day. But I believe Bel or um, Belier, also known as Belial, is not just a sign of the area, but a sign of the people or like how Judges chapter 8 verse 33 says, um, that the people of Gideon, the sons of Gideon, they made um, they made Baal a covenant to be their god. So, or Balderus, he was basically people would make a covenant with him to make um, to they they he basically would be their god, and he kept power over people's flesh, like over people's bloodlines. Um, so. It would, as we know, demonic entities have done before. They, um, if somebody makes a covenant with them, they'll hold on to their bloodline forever, until we know, of course, God steps in with the blood of Christ. But, um, so it seems that this Bell character, who also is characterized in um, Isaiah chapter forty-six, is one of the accusers, one of Satan's um, most important uh, soldiers, I guess. And he has a big part. He's got to have a very big part in the time coming. And um, as we've pointed out before, that Asher is, um, as me and my dad have discussed before, Asher seems to be that angelic entity over the the area of Babylon, and perhaps he wanted to be called Lord for some for his own prideful, arrogant reasons. And Lord, which is the name Bel or Baal, um, he has kept throughout the world wherever he's been with whoever he had made a covenant with. He has been known by this name as their Lord and Master. Those who, you know, subject themselves to him instead of God. Um, 
Back to you. That's all I got. Well, that's 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 uh, correct, Aaron. Um, we've talked about that in private. I'm, I've never talked about that publicly, but ladies and gentlemen, whenever you read in Hebrew the name that the children of Israel was given, I am that I am, that is in Hebrew, literally, Ayin Asher Ayin. That's what it is. This may very well lend credence to some of the clues left to us in the Bible. What did God say uh, that people were going to uh, plead to him? They repeated that bell scenario, Lord, Lord. Remember that? Whenever you look into that, you see of that. that yeah, I sure perhaps do. the source, perhaps the source of this arrogance came from the simple fact that his name just happened to be in the middle of "I am that I am." So that is a hypothesis that I have not spoken about publicly. So uh, Aaron just really spilled the beans, to be sure. Now, with that in mind, we have to remember that the nomos that the Dogon believed in. It was believed that uh, they were the inhabitants of a world circling the star Sirius. Uh, They descended from the sky in a vessel uh, accompanied by fire and thunder, which is very reminiscent, of course, of what happened to Elijah when he was taken to heaven. After arriving, uh, the Nomos created a reservoir of water and subsequently dived into the water, the Dogon legend state that, that the Nomos required a very watery environment in which to live. According to the myth, the Nomo divided his body among men to feed them. That is why it is said that as the universe had drunk of his body, the Nomo made, made men drink. He gave all his life principles to human beings. The Nomo were also thought to be the origin of the first Dogon priest. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you get into this, their depictions were just like the depictions of Dagon in the Bible. The legend states that he divided his body and then he started dividing into twins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk a little bit more Go ahead, I also would like to point out that Nomo has also had the sign of a serpent. That's right. <laughs> Which you can transliterate as to how it came over here, correct? What what are some instances we have of that very thing in Mundus Novus, Aaron, in the New World? Yes, um, that... In the New World, there were also there were also sightings in like um, Bolivia. There were sightings of some sort of fish entity as well. But most importantly, the plumed serpent we know is Quetzalcoatl, the god, the bloodthirsty god worshipped by the Aztecs, by which Hernando Cortez we know um, annihilated the Aztecs for worshiping. Basically. He saw it as they were worshiping Satan and sacrificing children to them, to him. And this 
this entity who called himself the serpent, the feathered serpent, showed up. He taught everybody how to take care of themselves, just like I described the other fish people did. And then he kind of got in a boat and started, just rode away and said that he would return one day. Hence, which strangely, the Spaniards showed up in that that time period when he said he would return, which was why they thought that he was Quetzalcoatl. They thought that Hernando Cortez was Quetzalcoatl, which was why they were sacrificing people to him at the time that he showed up. Um, hence why, in wrath, he exterminated the Aztec um, uh, entire country. So, yeah. In the New World, he has also been important. And I would like to point out that perhaps that the new world may be the new Babylon talked about in Revelation, where the beast of the abyss, Azazel, will come and set his throne. Exactly. Exactly, Aaron. So, ladies and gentlemen, through this idea of Bell, now you may begin to realize, as I hypothesized long ago, this is why the Bible states that uh, that Belar is the antipode of Jesus, and why Jesus would point that out to people crying out to him, Lord, Lord. Just take note. Some very interesting correlations there. Let's get back to the star Sirius. Let's talk about the mechanics as to the marvels around uh, what the Dogon believed. Please try to understand that the sidereal year for planet Earth, we all know, is 365.25 days. That is only valid for stars on the ecliptic. Now, Sirius has a displacement of 40 degrees below the ecliptic. Its proper motion, however, and the wobbling of the celestial equator causes it to have a period between its helical rising to be almost exactly 365.2 days long. This is called the Sothic cycle. Literally, Sirius marks off a perfect year between its risings. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's not all. Because I would have had to known something else about solar apex and antipex. You'll take note that this normal taught the Dogon that Sirius was where creation come from. Because they had to have known about solar apex. Let, let me explain this to you. You have to realize that... Sirius marks off our motion through the heavens as a solar system. Look at it this way. If we were in a vehicle and you turned around and looked out the rearview mirror, you would see Sirius. That's why Sirius has a twin in the heavens. It's the star which we are going to. That star is Vega. Now, 
when you realize all of these things, it, 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 it's absolutely amazing that Vega and Sirius and that these two beacons point out the path of our solar system's orbit around the center of the Milky Way. It, it's absolutely amazing. You see, Vega marks the apex of our solar system's path. And let me say that again. That's the direction with which our solar system is heading towards. Sirius, on the other hand, spotlights the approximate position of the solar antipex. Now, that's the direction that our solar system is traveling from. So when you start putting two and two together, the Dogon actually knew, well, you heard me read it at the beginning of this program, straight out of the observatory journal housed at you know Harvard University. Absolutely amazing what they have deducted. There's no way they could have come across that information. And I'll talk about this really lightly. Ladies and gentlemen, Dogon and Dagon in Hebrew is the same thing. Remember, Hebrew has no vowels. I apologize for my son, because all of you are scrambling to look up Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1, and probably either Brenton's or the Thompson. However, ladies and gentlemen, those are both incorrect. They're incorrect. They translated them both incorrect, because when you look at the Greek, it plainly says bel and Dogon in Greek. And yet when you look at the translations of the Septuagint, hmm, that seems to be missing. Just so you know, I know that those of you that are part of the Ecclesia, I know you were already looking at that as soon as my son said it. And you probably pulled up the Septuagint version of probably Thompson's, I would imagine, or the Britons. And you would have thought that my son was incorrect. Oh, no, he's not. It definitely says Dagon in the Septuagint. It does not say what Thompson in Britain says that it does. That's a lie. Or a mistranslation or a mistake, I don't know. So when we look at the amazing principles here and the simple fact that Really what the Dogon was doing was trying to get into our brains this idea of twins. It's extremely important. It's also extremely important to note this. My son mentioned Quetzalcoatl. Take note, ladies and gentlemen, that they didn't sacrifice twins. As a matter of fact, you could say... The only children that weren't sacrificed to Quetzalcoatl was twins. Now, with that in mind, that makes all of this absolutely off the charts. And it astounds me whenever you look into this stuff with the Dogon and Sirius, nobody tells you about the apex and antipex of our solar system. They never tell you that, well, technically, 
looking into the heavens, you would naturally assume that creation did happen at Sirius because that's where our solar system is coming from. So ladies and gentlemen, you might get into conspiracy theories and learn what information they have. I just shared with you double that. So with that in mind, uh, we've rambled on quite a bit here. Uh, let me apologize to Brian. My son got on a diatribe there and, and ran the course. God bless him. Um, so Brian, jump on here and give your 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 comments uh, so far, your thoughts, uh, please. Well, I'm going to start where I tend to start. And how do we put this? I think I'm about to knock down a lot of sacred cows for people. The first place we need to start all the way across the board here is obviously the Magi. Now, why would that be? Folks, you need to understand that they carried the symbolic, these symbolic uh, concepts tied into these different deities, into the different cosmologies with them wherever they went. And it was brought up, just a primary example of this was Quetzalcoatl was brought up. But we need to remember something because I've ex spent extensive time undoing the infamous concept that it was the uh, Zoroastrian priests that were the Magi. I know that's nonsense. They come to their conclusion by saying, well, look here, the Parthians are wearing those pointy hats. Folks, sit down and uh, look at who the Parthians actually were and who their founding fathers were. Okay, those pointy hats did not come from Zoroastrian priests by any stretch of the imagination. So this, therefore, means now we get to jump over to Central Asia. I've talked about this extensively in the past, that the Sakaskithian themselves were the Magi and had spread these ideas all over the place. And I want to point out to people, do yourself a favor and start looking for the infamous, uh, it's Herodotus referred to them as the Saka Tiger Huda. Look for the nice pointy hats that they wear and see where it shows up in the world because you're going to start noticing before long you'll find them over in Canada. You're going to find them over in the early Celtic regions within gold statues. You're going to find them on boats worldwide. And this keeps going for days on end. So this wraps us back around to who brought that information to the Dogon? I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it only could have been the Magi. Why did the Dogon still retain this information to pass it along later in history? Because luckily enough, at least for our advocation, they had been left alone by the outside world. So they were able to retain this information long enough to pass it along. Unfortunately, in since... Uh, the discovery of these people, they've been westernized and are slowly losing all of their understanding of everything. Now, to give a perfect, for instance, here, where did this Dogon thing really start? Well, we know of the deity that was brought up earlier that comes up in Sumerian mythology that's associated with Ea. Ea. 
Sumerian Enki. Okay, Ea is the uh, Akkadian version of it, the Sumerian Enki, which was a mix between a fish and a goat. So we got the twofold implication going on here. But they can even take that as far as bringing it into Capricorn. Now, I'm going to point something out here, folks, that is not common knowledge. And for those of you that read, uh, for instance, the work of Andrew Collins, you're about to find this out through his work because I already checked with him to make sure that he was full aware, well aware of this before publishing his next book. Do Sumerian people, their system, their priests, okay, that all came from Central Asia. Dingur, their main god, that is Tangri, that is known of in the Mongolian uh, Buryat religious circles. That was brought there by guess who? It was a Sakaskithian, and it was the Turkish people that had set up Sumeria. Now, this tears down a lot of preconceived notions, folks, but this is the reality of the matter. But I'm going to steer everybody over to take an interesting look at something that turns up here in the end of civilization. And I think maybe it's time to let the cat out of the bag on this one because I've held this back for a long time and I get a little tired of holding it back. It was brought up previously that the word for I am that I am has Asher in the middle of it. Everybody, I want you to pull up well, just simply, you can type in Shiva into civilization, and you're going to pull this up. And this is the Shiva Pashpute. Let me uh, double-check the name of this. Or it's called the uh, Pashapate Seal. And there will be a little picture at the top if you pull this up in the uh, Wikipedia article. I want you to hit that, take a look. And look at what's over to the right side of those horns coming up from his head. You're going to see right there in broad daylight is a fish symbol. While many of the Indus scholars who have been working on this point out that that fish symbol means star. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to the figure in the middle with his nice two horns. Now I'm going to point out something that's going to rattle everybody's cage. That is the Assyrian, folks. You might want to start tracing that little rabbit trail because it's going to open your eyes to a whole lot real quickly. And I want everybody to take note of this symbol and start looking at all of these things as far as astrological or astronomical concepts. And then keep building with it. Now, I study these cosmologies of pretty much, well, there's very few cosmologies I haven't studied throughout the world. And I've traced a whole heck of a lot of this stuff nonstop throughout the ages because anytime you study history, history is not just about kings and battles and, you know, all the nonsense that everybody wants to focus on. It's about cultures it's about their religious beliefs, their cosmologies, and if you throw these things out the window, you're only getting a baseline understanding of history, which does you little good. Going back to the 
Dogon cosmology and another connection that brings this in. Now, for instance, uh, Laird Stratton, who I speak with on quite a regular basis, has released several books on the Dogon cosmology. And let me try to pull up the specific article here, which, of course, uh, you can find one of these. Laird Stratton's site appears to be under a hacking attack, which I'm going to have to contact him later today and find out what's up with that. Um, Graham Hancock has an article up on his website you can access right now um, called August 2008 AOM Comparative Cosmology, The Dogon, Buddhism, and Ancient Egypt. Now, I've gone through at least two of Laird's books here in the past, and I can tell you, folks, they are excellent. Um, when you get down further in this article, you're going to notice here that he's got this uh, conal-shaped, almost pyramidal structure. And then he's got the uh, four-bore cross here. And then he breaks that down into some other things here. You know, and he starts breaking down these things into the varied cosmologies and their connections. Now, with that in mind, you know, because I've had many questions about, well, where is ancient Sumer or Central Asia? Where is there uh, proof that the Magi were astronomers? Folks, I'm going to tell you, there's no end in sight to it. And as far as this cosmological concept goes, that's the same here as the Dogon, the modern Buryat shamans and even Mongolian people to this day still build the yurt tents, which is an exact model and representation of this. And they set up everything within those yurts in a certain way. And there's all kinds of certain little, you know, uh, how would you call this, traditions that they continue to pass along that go into sort of almost a symbolic religious ritual type way of doing things the where they store their food where certain things are put in there etc it just it keeps building for days on end on top of it central asia you're also going to find out something else because they have pulled up many times and you can see this from the sky to make it even more clear if you go into central asia you're going to find circular structures that you're going to find in israel that are associated with the Rephaim to further solidify how it is that Central Asia ended up becoming the root of the Sumerian civilization, you need to look at the scripts that have been found in the Ukraine that are the precursors to the Sumerian script. This keeps building and building and building. But to completely break these things down, well, as I've always done, you got to go to the root source. And you got to realize, folks, that for one, I've done extensive work. We have a video on this showing where Eden actually is, showing where the roots of civilization came up and spread out. And you're going to find time and time again that once you move that place from in Pakistan there, Spread it up and move it out, coming through Central Asia, a whole lot is going to start making sense. And I'm telling you, folks, you better be prepared for Andrew's uh, up, Andrew Collins' upcoming book because it's going to be a blockbuster. And he let me know he's got a second one on the way. 
already that he's collected that much information. While he's doing the first one here, he's already got the second one prepped to go as well. So I thought I would throw at least some of those little tiny tidbits in there to kind of uh, give a basis to understanding what is happening here and why the same symbolic uh, symbols keep showing up all over the world. And maybe all of a sudden we've got this symbol with, uh, like I said before, folks, that's Asher. And we've got that fish right over his head. And as far as these last days are concerned, folks, you should be looking for the fact that the Assyrian and the the opposite spectrum of those magi are going to be working hand in hand, and it's all being solidified as we speak. Absolutely off the charts, Bri. You just come in here and just just smoke me, don't you? That's that's classic. Um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard Brian talk about the Maharaba many times. Uh, this cycle. Uh, that is chronicled in India. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you realize uh, that Neptune and Uranus is in that text. Now, that's absolutely off the charts, but ladies and gentlemen, not only that, I hope you all realize that they even knew what color the planets were. Now, how is that possible? Well, hey, let me interject that real quick. Yeah, go ahead. We have to understand the roots of, well, now modern days, they call that remote viewing. Well, that goes back to the ancient shamanic practices of astral projection. That's right, it does, Brian. Um, It does indeed. Which, again, plays into the – well, I don't want to say too much about it. But, ladies and gentlemen, it is common knowledge that – well, I don't know if I want to say that. Uh, Brian and I have talked about that before privately, and he stressed he didn't want to mention it. But I've already spilled the beans. Ladies and gentlemen, there it has been documented that you can astral project into different stars. And if you want to see the past, you astral project Sirius. And it is a very highly guarded kept secret that if you want to project the future, you go to Vega. Now, let's make this perfectly clear that uh, we're not saying uh, that is God, it, it is godly to be doing things like that. Um, nowhere remotely did I say that. I'm just reporting on what has been relayed to me by people that in the past that have done so. And I don't mean little people. I mean world-renowned Kabbalists, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I've told you many times over the course of the years that they often contact me 
with questions. So, with that in mind, I'm, I, I need to stress this again. Christians don't do such things. I'm just telling you what has been relayed to me. And, uh, Brian, would you like to uh, describe that a little bit? Um, everybody knows that uh, you were saved out of this, well, nightmare um, that you were in uh, with the occult. Uh, do you have any further information along those lines that you would like to share? But if you don't want to, I'm completely fine with that. Just let me know, yay or nay. Heck, I ain't got nothing to hide. Uh, let me point out, though, real quickly, folks, um, they are teaching people to ask for astral project in these, uh, well, I prefer to call them a coven as opposed to a church because it's they're not churches by any stretch of the imagination, but they are teaching these people to astral project under the guises of they're twisting things within the Bible, that's what they do, and they get away with it because, of course, these people don't look into these things whatsoever, so they spend loads of money to go in and learn occult concepts, and we've covered that a little bit there in uh, the program we did on Isaiah 29. I don't really want to go to that direction too much deeper. Now, as far as astral projecting into stars, well, look, I had... One of my own experiences where a friend of mine in the past made the infamous comment to me that pretty much shook up my entire understanding of a whole lot in a split moment. And he had brought up the fact that within some of the circles within Egyptian magic that he was working with and through some of the training, they were going on about astral projecting into a star. And the knucklehead dared me to try to do this, go up into this star and, well, lo and behold, guess what? Split second, I shot straight into it. I'm going to tell you folks right now, it's not something you want to see. And to point out what Matthew stated about seeing the past, well, I can tell you right now it was the brightest star in the sky. And that would have been at that point of time, in, during that time of year, that would have been serious. What I saw in there was essentially all the old deities walking around in massive cities and everything else. But I'd have to say they don't exactly like people doing this because something decided it was going to come back and was quite ticked off. And we had a couple of run-ins with this thing over the next few days. Folks, if you're in these churches that are trying to um, convince you to start doing these kind of things you best wake up to what they're doing and you better run and if you don't think it's happening I can tell you firsthand I've had people around here that are calling themselves Christians all of a sudden we turn around and they're standing in our hallway okay so they're teaching this stuff and as Matthew pointed out if you're in the midst of this, you better run. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. I think you've learned just about 
mind-blowing information tonight about especially the apex and antipex of our solar system. I haven't talked about Vega. I have just expressed the simple facts that astronomically speaking, these fish deities had revealed information that not only the Dogon, but certainly not the Magi. There's no way they could have known that. There's no way possible. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, how, how can it be in an ancient – I mean, we're talking 3000 B.C. How could they possibly have known that that Uranus was greenish-white, and they called it Sueta? Uh, uh, Neptune, they called it Samaya. They knew it was bluish-white. How is that possible? I, I mean, how... The, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's, that's not possible. It's – look, they even said that Uranus, they called it by – and please forgive me on my pronunciations here, but they dubbed it as Mahaputa, denoting that it had a greater orbit, a larger orbit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's there's no way they knew that unless something else quite different was at play. Now, I know we've already spilled some information, but <laughs> especially the simple fact I know that all of you are sitting there trying to read Isaiah chapter 46 verse 1 in the Septuagint looking for Dagon, and it's there staring you in the face, and you don't understand what's going on, because under no stretch of the imagination should have Thompson or Brenton translated that any other way except Dagon. Now, I'm just saying that we've been given additional information. We know the bell that's for sure. But then we have Nebo, which we know who he was in the Hebrew, but why would the Greek w want to encode to us Dagon? Now, Brian, did you have a chance to look at H5123 in the Hebrew? You always got to catch me Brian? with my hands in my pockets, don't you? I was just running <laughs> something else at the same time. Yes, I have that pulled up right now. I've already got it sitting here in the uh, dictionary. I haven't looked at these verses yet. I was doing another search at the same time here. Um, well, of course, here we've got Noom to be drowsy, slumber, sleep. The slumber be drowsy. We've got this coming up. Let me see here. At least in the concordance, it's... Uh, 
showing it a grand total of six times, which we have it now. Actually, let's see if that works without doing that. Nope. Uh, just a second. Let me pop that back over to the NASB. All right. We've got that coming up in Psalms 121, 3 through 4. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Isaiah 5, verse 27. Isaiah 56, verse 10. Oh, this one, uh, that's interesting when you consider that, that Sirius is also known as the Dog Star. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. Folks, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that verse says a whole heck of a lot more than you understand that it does. You really need That's to pay right. attention that is on correct. top of it. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber because, well, that's when you kind of have the tendency to, I guess you would say, see into these other worlds. Well, that's correct. Ladies and gentlemen, when you look into the Hebrew at the exact spelling of this word, as you would pronounce these deities that uh, this fish deity that came down and spoke to the Dogon people. It would be Nun Vav Mem Vav. That exact sequence is in five verses in the Hebrew Bible source code. That is the Masoretic text coupled with the Delic New Testament. I'll read them to you. <clears throat> Job 33 in verse 15. In a dream, a vision of the night when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds. You need to read the verses accompanying that. Now we're going to run into twin verses. Proverbs 6, verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That, of course, is mimicked in Proverbs 24, verse 33. Now we're going to maybe understand why Jesus quoted this in the same verse he refers to the sign of the Son of Man. Matthew 26, verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Mark chapter 14 and verse 41 is a reiteration of that last verse. And he came a third time. Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Ladies and gentlemen, wrap your minds around this, that 
here encoded is the normal of the Dogon. Now just take note, ladies and gentlemen. Remember what the observatory chronicled back there in 1977. They said this had everything to do with twins. And everybody's taken by surprise when I reveal the simple fact that Revelation, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 15, plainly describes seven stars being seen. Now, with that being the case, we already know about the Nice model, ladies and gentlemen. It would seem to me that the Dogon had been told that when they were able to see Uranus and Neptune with the naked eye, it was going to be the end of time. And I just want to say that that in and of itself is off the charts, ladies and gentlemen. There's just no way they could have known that. There's just no way. But yet they did. Now, when you transfer this down, you begin to realize that, oh my goodness, there's some things at play here that's just off the charts because... The reason why the Dogon would have had this this idea that Nomul was splitting and becoming twins and then coming back together. Because that marks off, of course, the 170-year cycle that is the conjunction of the twins in the heavens. And everybody knows that is Uranus and Neptune. Take note. Take serious note to this. The last time, of course, there was a conjunction between Uranus and Neptune was 1993. Whether you like it or not, that's when the Israel Peace Accord was signed, September 13th, 1993. Let's go back to the one before that. You know, looking at these things, looking at this cycle is absolutely off the charts. That's when, of course, back during the Greek revolution against the Turks, Jews got massacred. It's when they revolted against the Ottoman Empire. Not only that, the Jewish slaughter that began in the 1821 program in Russia. That's right, in Odessa. Everybody knows about those. Yes, that was in 1821. The massacre in Constantinople in 1821. 
once again, the Jews got butchered. So when you think about this 170-year cycle that Uranus does, it's absolutely off the charts. Especially when, oh, there's other people that know about this 170-year cycle. Take note that it was Raymond H. Wheeler uh, in his famous cycles that he produced about the weather. In all of his research, he gathered that every 170 years, there was not only a cycle of the weather of the weather patterns, but this 170-year cycle seemed to promote revolution, civil war, and anarchy, and he proved it, and everybody knows it. Of course, everybody studies his cycles because of the stock market. But ladies and gentlemen, he proved that this coincides one with another. It was amazing that he figured this out, that you know there was threefold cycles of this 170-year interval that when overlaid it on top of it, it was also pointed out to times of drought as far as the climate went. So ladies and gentlemen, this, this information is off the charts. Of course, this idea of Nomo in the Hebrew, I have often speculated with just my own thoughts that would this time be the triggering when the Bible says that the young people would begin to have their have the Lord's Spirit poured upon them? And when you take this into the greater context, it's absolutely off the charts. But there's no reason to debate... with what these scientists discovered about what the Dogon knew, astronomically speaking. The whole purpose of me doing this show is to let you know ahead of time, we've had so much buildup about this sign that's going to occur in 2017 relating to the woman with child. Just take note. The Bible most emphatically states, you're told in the first chapter of, of Revelation that those seven angels are seven stars. And it, why is it a marvelous sign to see all seven of them? Because you can't, ladies and gentlemen, you can't see Uranus and Neptune that are the twins with the naked eye. But you're going to. Brian, why don't you take over for a minute uh, while I try to put together a break for us? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of little tidbits I could throw into this equation. Um, 
Let me add a little uh, dot at the end of Matthew's sentence. Because, well, uh, once again, we've seen over the years how people run around just completely making up nonsense about the book of Esther and how many different groups have tried to reject it, saying this, that, and the other thing. Oh, it's talking about this, that, and blah, blah, blah. Well, let's talk about, for instance, the word Esther. Okay, you can break that down to the simple format, a star. You could even make correlations with Venus, if you so chose. We have Mordecai, which they have emphatically have tied into Marduk, or to put it nicely, Mars. And I would state in their own ways of pointing these things out, to a degree that might have been actually a good thing. But to reject the book of Esther, that's nonsense. There's very specific reasons those patterns were shown before. And as I had pointed out in a previous show, at the rise of Nazi Germany, for instance, you need to recall that one of the first uh, first anti-Semitic uh, religious ideas that Hitler came across was named Ostara. That was through this name of this group. Okay, so there's things encoded there. We talked about the Martin Bormann and Heyman equation. Okay, there's a whole lot more going on than meets the eye in all of these patterns that you should be able to automatically start looking for once you begin to understand the time repeats itself. That's the way God created it. Now, I know they have this wonderful statement they run around with that says, well, we learn history so we don't repeat our same mistakes. Yet history goes to show that that's not the case because those same mistakes, as they state they are, they're always on a repetition. You know, and there's other details, you know, to bring up here. Um, Because I'll leave this Greek when we get back from the break because, whoa, boy, it's tough going on here is enough to blow your mind if you have eyes to see. We've also got this coming up in a very interesting spot in Nahum. 3 verse 18, your shepherds are sleeping. Uh, Let me clarify, actually, it's H5123. I'm talking about the Hebrew still. Nahum 3, verse 18, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. Boy, oh boy, just that first word. Shepherds should have people's minds scrambling in multiple directions all at once, as they should be. Um, I didn't read the other verse. Uh, This was in Isaiah 5, verse 27. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Brian, you realize... Profe- Go ahead. Prophetically, you that's... fill in what I was you realize say. Pro- I mean, Brian, prophetically, he's speaking about the orbital path. 
Exactamundo. I mean, late. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, it's it's off the charts what this is implying, and it's encoded that way all over with this word. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take an exactly 10-minute break. This is the End Time Tribune. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the End Time Tribune. I am absolutely amazed at everything that's going on with, well, celestial symbology here of late. Ladies and gentlemen, let me bring your attention to the simple fact of that <clears throat> Pluto crosses into Neptune's orbit. When you realize what the opening chapters of the book of Revelation states, the simple fact that the angels are stars. When you look at these things, as I did when I was a boy, you will take note that the message to Uranus was this, prophetically speaking. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast that you, to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I have thought for years and years and years that somehow, some way, science would eventually discover that Neptune had somehow stolen Uranus's crown. I have that in handwritten notes. From the late 80s, ladies and gentlemen, in handwritten notes. You will take note that February 12th, 2015, New Horizon Probe filmed Pluto and Charon. Only Charon was not orbiting Pluto. They were orbiting each other in a celestial dance. As if it was a crown. Now, you can imagine my surprise when Brian informed me that there was such a thing as a Neath model. Brian had no idea that I had these in my handwritten notes from the late 80s. Then I realized exactly how this was tied into celestial somology, the events of Genesis chapter 38, when one twin stuck its hand out, they tied a crimson cord around it. That twin got its hand pulled back in, and then the other one was born. And Brian informs me that, yeah, they proved mathematically that Uranus and Neptune, mathematically speaking, are supposed to be swapped. Then after those calculations were confirmed, they went on to, of course, prove that Jupiter had come inbound and done a grand tack. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to take a reread of those messages to the seven churches and start correlating them with the seven planets in the solar system. You know, 
ladies and gentlemen, the Bible has a whole lot more information that you ever thought possible. These things are going to take place, but the first sign that we're given is a wondrous sign. In Revelation chapter 12, that proceeds the sign mentioned in Revelation chapter 15. Whether you like it or not, you're going to literally see these things come to pass. Literally. Brian, your your thoughts, buddy. Oh boy, my thoughts. Well, that's interesting. As I'm looking into something else in the background here, I don't think I'm going to let that cat out of the bag until maybe a later time. We've talked about this uh, in the past. It's rather interesting, these little dates I'm pulling up here as I pull this information back up. Um, I mean, I guess uh, thoughts as far as where we've stopped off with uh, H5123. Take note, uh, folks. Last use of this is in uh, one of the Psalms of Asaph. It's in Psalm 76, verse 5. Stout-hearted were plundered, they sank into sleep, and none of the warriors could use his hands. I'll let you pop back over to that right there. <laughs> you had to bring Asaph into the equation, didn't you, Brian? Ladies and gentlemen, you, you seriously need to do a Bible study on the parallel apocalypse. It's 12 chapters. And the book of Asaph, it's 12 chapters. You need to prepare yourself for seeing signs in the heavens. Because... Ladies and gentlemen, we we already have evidence of the celestial scapegoat at play. I mean, they just released information, more data proving the celestial scapegoat is looming in the deep just a couple of weeks ago. I have not had a chance to finish my first post on the sign of the son of man dot wordpress dot com yet. But I am working on it. You know, it makes me wonder if... Brian mentioning Psalm 76, if any of you know the contents of that right off the top of your head. I mean... How is it that all of you claim to be experts in Revelation, experts in Revelation, experts in Revelation?
Revelation is only a commentary on the rest of the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, Psalm 76 talks very clearly about heaven being Zion prophetically. You're supposed to know that Zion is a prophetic term for the throne room of the living God. This entire chapter here is a prophetic way, ladies and gentlemen, to speak about the war in heaven when things begin to go awry due to the incursion of the celestial scapegoat into the inner solar system. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, you know, it's it's amazing to me. You can just use the very first church mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. Line that right up with Mercury. Everything that I know about, about Mercury, it is a prophetic way to describe Mercury, especially with her orbital. I mean, you do realize that Mercury is so out of whack that eventually it's going to actually hit Venus if the Lord don't come back. It has the most eccentric orbit of any planet known in the solar system. Outside the solar system as well, what they call exoplanets. And when you sit here and read this, and when you realize, uh, uh, let's just take verses 4 and 5 of Revelation chapter 2. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Ladies and gentlemen, Mercury, I just told you, they know that it's moving second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. It continues to move out of its rightful place. Verse 5, therefore remember from where you have fallen. Ladies and gentlemen, he's talking about Mercury's orbital path. And repent and do the deeds you did at first. The king of creation is literally telling Mercury, you better get back in your proper place or else what? Finishing the verse. Or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to for once begin to believe that God can say a whole lot more than just one thing out of his mouth when he speaks. I mean, really, you do. Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He literally just told you point-blank range. Those seven stars are seven angels. That's what he said. Literally, that's what he said. So when you go to Revelation chapter 15, 
Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had the seven plagues. Ladies and gentlemen, how many people have written that the plagues of Egypt had something to do with the planets not being in the right place? I mean, let's talk about Sisera and Jabin. You're told point-blank range that the angel of the Lord got mad at the celestial scapegoat for not helping defeat Sisera and Jabin. I mean, we've talked about, Brian and I have talked about this at length many different times. So, ladies and gentlemen, listen to what it says. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had the seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. He literally just prophetically come out and told you that the seven stars, Jupiter's grand tack, the Nice model, planetary migration is real, and God has literally prophetically encoded it into his word over and over and over. So you can imagine my surprise that, ladies and gentlemen, I talked about these things in an institution of higher learning 20 years ago, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, Brian and I get to be friends, then graduate to brothership, and he tells me, by the way, Matthew, we need to do a, an, an episode on the Nice model. I'm like, what are you talking about? You can imagine my surprise when science began to prove exactly what I've been saying all this time. We're going to see Jupiter, and lo and behold, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can most certainly look it up on the NASA website. Uh, I'm not joking with you. I'm being serious. So, ladies and gentlemen, you need to start to realize that God has told us a whole lot more than you ever thought that he did. It's absolutely off the charts. This straight from NASA, the Astrobiology Center, Jupiter's Grand Tack reshaped the solar system. Ladies and gentlemen, this was published in 2011. Over 20 years, I talked about the simple fact. I was trying to tell everybody. You can imagine my professor's consternation with me. They thought I was literally nuts. When I show, I pulled the Babylonian records, the, the Greek records, all the historic... Look, Jupiter has always been the king star, always, everywhere. They thought I was absolutely nuts. It's too bad I can't speak to them now because then I would hand them this in printed form and say, see, I told you so. 
Brian, your your well, thoughts on this, please? Say, I, I'm, I think it's important to interject something here, and you may get mad at me. A whole lot of other people I know are going to get overtly ticked off at me, and that's fine. Um, folks, you need to understand right now, because I notice everybody is calling the Celestial uh, Scapegoat, they're calling it Nibiru. Folks, you're not going to understand the Nice model if you don't understand that Nibiru always in the Sumerian text was Jupiter. When you lock that in and you look at the entirety of that story that was brought forth from the Magi into Sumeria, okay, look, you're being told what happened in the heavens and what they witnessed with their own eyes. Okay, they saw this war above their heads. Okay, Mars, for instance, the infamous crater that's sitting there. You've got the astral body that floats around it that they call a dwarf planet, which is essentially Vesta. That is the core, the remaining core of the planet that slammed into Mars. And Matthew can back me up this here with this here because he helped with the calculations that prove this. Okay, so... Keep that in mind when everybody is throwing out that the name of this planet is Nibiru. Matthew, back me up here. What is the name of it actually in the Hebrew? (laughs) You mean the actual name of the celestial scapegoat? It is Meraz. Exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, the point here being, study what... Please look up the paper on NASA. If Jupiter hadn't swung in, Uranus and Neptune swapped places. Earth would have never been a habitable zone. You need to understand, they've known this, ladies and gentlemen. 2% is your window of life, just 2%. If you're 2% closer to the sun, you burn. If you're 2% farther away, this turns into a frozen popsicle. It was Jupiter's grand tack that corrected the issue of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. When was the last time that you all read what it actually stated, what it actually said? Verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Let me shed light on that for you. You don't realize he was talking about the Holy Spirit uh, decided that, hey, we need to have a ecliptic here. We need to have an orbital path. We all get to get on the same page. Once we do that, we will create a what? A habitable zone for the Lord's footstool. Ladies and gentlemen, let me make sure I, I make this. I published a paper on this. Published it. You need to get this in your mind. It is plainly in historical church documents. They thought that the Greeks were worshipping a group of deities known as the Moazim from the Hebrew. Well, guess what? When you look at it in the Greek, and it speaks about the inhabitants thereof, you look at that. Words specifically used, you come to this conclusion. Miraz is simply Moaz 
with a Rosh inserted exactly in the middle of it. We all know what the Rosh means in Hebrew. It means head when it's pronounced. Ladies and gentlemen, like I've, I've stated many times before, I mean, you can even find this information on Blue Letter Bible. I think it has the, the footnotes there. You can see it. The Bible experts back in the 1800s thought that the Greeks were worshipping a group of deities called the Moazim. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you understand what I'm trying to say? You have heard on this broadcast many times before that Moaz is the root of Oz, the scapegoat, a zazzle, literally saying that a prophetic term for this planet is Meraz, and those angels that are under him are called Moazim. Ladies and gentlemen, look up in what happened preceding 70 AD with the destruction of the Temple Mount. They would send out the celestial scapegoat with a scarlet ribbon tied around its neck. Its neck. All of a sudden it came back, and the ribbon hadn't turned white like it was supposed to. There is a celestial scapegoat. That's going to come inbound. And if the Lord Jesus Christ does not take Jupiter and do another grand tack and do another planetary migration, you need to understand that prophetically, astronomically, what the book of Revelation is plainly describing is the other part of the Yom Kippur sacrifice. There was one for the Lord and one for the scapegoat, Azazel. We haven't done that one yet. Christ finished the first one when he died and resurrected, but we never got around to doing the second part, the sacrifice for Azazel, the scapegoat. That's why Revelation has to be done. That's why it has to be done, ladies and gentlemen. Because this miraz, this celestial scapegoat that's out in the deep. And ladies and gentlemen, I have told everybody, like I said, I've published it. Look up Trez 2B. It's exactly what I think is lying in the deep. And ladies and gentlemen, I have been having talks about this with astrophysicists. At universities over the past, what, Brian, six or seven months? They're scared half to death because they want it to be something, well, maybe we can make Mars. And I keep telling them, look at Trez 2B. The only reason why we did discover it was because it did a transit across this parent star. It, it's, ladies and gentlemen, its libido is less than black acrylic paint. You can't see it because it is the color of the background of the star field. The only way you're going to be able to spot the celestial scapegoat is if it does an occultation in front of other stars and you see the stars disappear, but there's no – you can't find a reason as to why you can't see, let's say, Sirius or let's say Vega or any of the other stars. 
You understand that it is the same color as the black night that is the background of the star field. You can't see it. They have absolutely no explanation as to why this super gas giant. Look it up. They have even formally dubbed it the Dark Knight. It's what they dubbed this star. Or this planet that's going around this this star. Ladies and gentlemen, go over to the Sloho website because when they saw it, uh, they did a live streaming so you could see it, you know, go across the surface of its star. But you go over there now and you can't find the video. They won't let you see it. Go to YouTube and try to find it. But look it up. Trez 2B Transit. They removed the video, ladies and gentlemen. Why do you think they did that? Why do you think they did that? No, really. Ladies and gentlemen, they know the celestial scapegoat is altering at least 150 planets uh, or objects, I mean, past Neptune. They call these extreme trans-Neptunian objects. Well, ladies and gentlemen, their axes are off by seven or eight degrees. And they're saying, well, we figured it's in the same vicinity, so based on that math, that'd make it about the size of Mars, really. If you take Mars and put it out that far, guess what? Every amateur astronomer would have seen it by now. It's something much larger. You know, prophetically, it makes me think about when the Lord Jesus Christ said, the night is coming when no good deed can be done. Was he prophetically saying that they were going to name this object the dark night? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just telling you the truth. I have been in private conversations with astrophysicists at major universities over the past six or seven months, and they are scared half to death. They absolutely want to believe, no, this must be something really small but have a really great big mass, something, you know, maybe it's a chunk of solid iron. Yeah, that's why we can't see it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you the truth. You know, if Brother Marshall, my pastor, was still alive, I would have him come on the End Time Tribune and explain to you the ramblings of what he thought to be a crazy teenager telling him that, hey, we're going to see Jupiter. And by the way, Pluto is going to become a moon of either Uranus or Neptune. But I can't because he's already graduated. Anyway, I'm sorry for that rambling there. Brian, your thoughts on that? Well, there's just so much that goes into this. I mean, attempting to cover this in one shot is not going to do it justice. 
Now, there's a couple of odds and ends to bring up here. You know, as far as... Well, let's go to the seven churches for a minute. I found one interesting little map here. You can type in uh, good old Google and uh, type in Revelation and the seven churches. And there's one image that I found in the, uh, if you go over and click on the images section. Well, they did something very interesting. They put them in a circle. Folks, there's a whole lot encoded into these seven churches on so many levels, it's ridiculous. And folks, you might want to keep an eye on the place that is now modern Smyrna. A few weeks ago, it was in flames. Secondly, from Turkey over to Qatar, they were sending aid from that area. But, you know, there's another little detail. I've known about this for... Good grief. I mean, years upon years upon years on end. We have something that was brought up by, let's see here, Abraham Ibn Ezra. And he points out something about the great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Here's a a little note from the one book I pulled up on this, for it has, in exile, following Talmudic sources, even Ezra usually conveys the idea that the Jews have a dual status, vis-a-vis the stars. On the one hand, he enlists the famous Talmudic dictum, there is no mazal for Israel. To buttress the idea that the Jewish nation is immune to astrological influence, on the other hand, he maintains, that if they do not keep the Torah, then the zodiacal signs rules over them. Hence, he usually maintains that Jewish history is under the sway of conjunctions of Saturn and Jupiter in Aquarius, which is responsible for the Jews' abject condition. This is explained in his long commentary on Exodus 30. 3, verse 21. Now, folks, take note of Saturn, Jupiter, Aquarius. I, Good grief, Matthew. How many years ago did I do all the work on this, lock it into Stellarium, and flesh this whole thing out? Because, folks, your next one of these is on December 21st of 2020. And it is quite a wonder to behold all the planets that are rolling through Aquarius while this uh, Jupiter-Saturn conjunction is taking place in Aquarius. You can pull up, on Wikipedia, you can pull up the simple Great Conjunction uh, article, and you can go through here and you can look at the different Great Conjunctions between Jupiter and Saturn, and where they happen according to the years. And it's quite telling. But I want to throw that little tidbit out there and kind of be quiet now for a moment. Well, ladies and gentlemen, look up the map. Go to NASA and look up what... Go look up the Nice model, Jupiter's Grand Tech, because guess what? Ladies and gentlemen, what just came out of Brian's mouth is true mathematically. They proved... That it was Saturn that latched a hold of Jupiter and brought her back out to its proper place. That's why Saturn has forever been known as the father star. 
Look, I'm going to read straight from space.com. This was on June 26, 2015. It says, Tres 2B, a planet nicknamed the Dark Knight because it reflects so little light, will cross the face of its host star on Saturday, June 27, in a transit captured by the online Slow Community Observatory. You can watch the free event, the first ever live public observation of an exoplanet, according to Slow Representatives, live at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the SLU website. By all means, click the link. The video is gone. Search on it for YouTube. They don't want you to see it. Because, ladies and gentlemen, please try to understand something. There's only a couple of reasons as to why this thing is as black as night. They think that it's because the atmosphere is full of light-absorbing chemicals such as vaporized sodium, potassium, or gaseous titanium oxide. They also don't understand why it's so hot. They also call it a hot Jupiter. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'll go on. In general, hot Jupiters are expected to be dark because absorption due to the broad wings of the sodium and potassium D-lines is thought to dominate their visible spectra. Apart from that of Kepler-7b, albedo measurements for hot Jupiters have generally given only upper limits. Oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, don't you understand what the scientist just told you? This celestial scapegoat is like Jupiter, only because of the content. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, seriously? Wrap your mind around this. Only gaseous titanium could cause that, but that, that would also cause it to withhold, be perfectly insulated, so they're massively hot. So they call these gas giants like this hot Jupiters. That's what they call them. Ladies and gentlemen, go back to the sacrifice chapter. Select one for the Lord and one for Azazel. I mean, it's almost like prophecy coming true. You know, most of you wonder as to why I come forward with such authority. How I'm able to do and to say what it is I say with complete and absolute non-debatable stance on what I say about what the Hebrew and the Greek says in the Bible source code. Well, ladies and gentlemen, maybe this is a part of it. I believed that the Bible was talking not only about spiritual things and physical things, but also astronomical. And NASA has proved me right. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you realize what I said about the 170-year cycle of the celestial twins? 
Uranus and Neptune. The last time they conjuncted in the heavens was 1993 when the Oslo Peace Accords was signed. We've talked about some charts things tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you know that one of the astrophysicists I've been talking to, and Brian knows all the conversations. I have them all recorded, by the way. You've seen him on multiple Discovery Channel documentaries. I know him personally. You should have seen his surprise when he contacted me about what the New Horizon had recorded as they sat there in, in, in complete and absolute wonder as they literally watched Pluto and Charon dance. And he immediately called me because we had talked about these things five or six years ago. I said, no, the reason why they did that, the reason why Pluto was got taken out of the planet category is because it's really supposed to be either Uranus or Neptune's moon. He thought I was crazy. Guess what? A few days after this was released, he's the one that sent it to me. He's like, oh my gosh, you're right. The center of gravity, their center of gravity… It's not Pluto. They're dancing around each other. That means something else is their parent body. Well, yeah, that's what I said. That's why Pluto comes into Neptune's orbital path. It's exciting for me, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I long for my redemption. I don't know what all these other eschatology experts long for because it's not the return of Christ their king. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Brian, your closing thoughts before we run out of time here. Looks like we've got about four more minutes left in overdrive. Well, I mean, uh, closing thoughts here you know, on this, folks. Look, you have to understand that I'm not even certain how many years worth of work went into this. A good two, maybe three, where I went through and charted out the entire kit and caboodle concerning what they would call the cycle of cosmic catastrophes. And they all have varying degrees, different things happening. Okay, we Matthew mentioned a few things. At some point, we're going to have to breach the galactic superwave. He's already brought up the uh, Nice model and Jupiter's Grand Tech. Okay, um, everybody loves the story about Atlantis, but the key portion in there is all the things he explains. When Plato has the discourse with the Egyptian, and he tells them him that the stars have left their courses. And this has caused many catastrophes. 
hand-in-hand with this, there's been catastrophes that have been due to meteorite and comet bodies. Okay, folks, I was able to track and find the actual comet via using these things that are in the Bible and using corrected chronologies worldwide, and I actually locked in the comet that was responsible for what is referred to as the Phaeton event. Okay, what all happens in the Bible concerning all of this? Okay, we had 1607, which is about the 80 years approximate to before the birth of Moses. There was a massive event. It was charted in China. A star or a uh, cometary body broke up into seven, or was it seven or ten pieces? It's recorded in the Indian text as well. Charted that across. Then we have what happens with Deborah and the stars fighting from their course. Go forward, we have Joshua's long day, or actually backwards. Forward from there, we have Hezekiah's 10 steps, and we can actually continue forward. There's an actual cycle, a measurable cycle in between all these events, as far as what I've referred to as the Phaeton Comet, where you can literally go through and explain all of this stuff. But there's a very much more complex things, such as what Matthew was talking about here with the celestial scapegoat, Jupiter's grand tech, the Nice model, galactic superwaves, uh, what they refer to as plasma cosmology now. For instance, this gets deep, folks, but we can break this down very easily with the Bible and explain all of these things because every single one of these things is right there. As a matter of fact, it's in broad daylight, but sometimes you have to change your vantage point and your perspective so you can see these layers because God, many times in one verse, he can show you about a thousand different things. And that's what we hope to illuminate back and forth through these varied, uh, extra weekly shows that we're going to be doing here. But that's what I've got left to say there on that. Thanks for joining us. God bless. Matthew, if I have anything to add, go for it quick. Well, I do have something to say back to uh, Psalms chapter 76, verse 3. Ladies and gentlemen, the comments. There he broke the flaming arrows. Where have you heard about that in the New Testament? Who has flaming arrows? That's plainly talking about comets. And the shield and the sword and the weapons of war, selah. Ladies and gentlemen, the shield, that's the heliosphere that's both around this solar system and one around our planet. They call it the magnetic shield. Ladies and gentlemen, please believe that the Bible, God's holy word, is true in more ways than you can possibly imagine. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, God bless. Godspeed.